Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is mastering engineer Pete Dell. First of all, I want to talk about the principles of the new music business. There's actually 10 of them. Something I posted on my blog, on my Music 3.0 music industry blog, recently, and a lot of people really liked it. Now, I know many people that listen to the podcast don't actually read that blog, so I thought I would repeat those 10 principles for the new music business. So here we go in no particular order. So the first one is it's all about scale. However, where it used to be all about sales, now we're looking more at views and streams. So sales anymore on a hit might be 50,000 if you're lucky, where years ago you'd be talking millions on a hit. So everything has changed completely. You have to get sales out of your mind because they just don't count anymore. There's not that many of them. If you get any sales, you can be very thankful because the music business isn't built around that any longer. The second thing is the scale is different. Once upon a time, a million of anything was huge. That's all changed. A million in the new music 4.0 digital age that we're in today is really nothing. It doesn't even get you in the ball game. About 10 million views or streams are needed before people begin to take notice. And you don't even have a minor hit until you hit 50 million. So get that 1 million out of your mind because it doesn't mean as much as it used to. As a matter of fact, it means very little these days. You have to really hit 10 million for anybody's eyes to open a little bit. The next thing is there's going to be fewer and fewer digital distributors in the future. Right now, I think there's 37 different digital distributors for music around the world. That being said, we're probably going to end up with four or five worldwide. Now, of course, the biggest ones in North America are going to be Amazon, Apple, and Google. There's an outside chance that Spotify will actually continue. I would bet that it will probably be absorbed by one of the three that we're talking about. Probably we'll also have a couple in China or a couple in the East. Tencent is the one that I would imagine will still continue. Alibaba might be another. So here we go with the fact that when streaming first started, there were dozens and dozens of different distributors, and now we're going to be down to just a few, just like major labels. A big principle in the new music business is what can you do for other people? That really turns around money. How do they make money around you? Really, when it comes down to it, most people in the music business, in the business part of the business, don't really care so much about your music. They care about your audience. If you have a big audience, you can accomplish just about anything in the music business because that means at least the potential for everybody to make money. Now, this is clubs, agents, promoters, managers, record labels. That's what they care about. So you have to be able to make money for them. And in order to do that, you have to have an audience. The next thing is money frequently comes late in the business. I shouldn't say frequently. Money almost always comes late. If you were to organically grow that audience, it takes time. Usually if you become a hit in a hurry, it means that people are going to forget about you in a hurry. But if you can sustain over time, eventually you begin to make money. It just doesn't happen overnight. The next big thing is major labels want radio hits. 
if you want to sign with the major label, you better give them something that they want, and that's a radio hit, a radio-friendly song. So if you don't know how to write those, you better learn or forget about ever signing with the major label because that's what they're built around. Another thing that's a big part of the music business today is you have to create on a regular basis. This idea of making an album every year or every two hours is so passe, and right now it's all built around singles. So the more often you have a single or a video coming out, the more your audience stays interested in you. That's what you have to keep up, engagement and interest. And the only way you can do that is to constantly feed your audience, feed your fan base, new music and new product. Another thing is YouTube and Facebook are the new radio. I just read something yesterday where it looks like many new cars won't even come with FM radios soon. And in fact, many new cars already don't come with AM radios. What does that mean? It means we're becoming more and more connected. And the major parts of that connectivity, at least on a music side, is Facebook and YouTube. The next thing is to grow your audience organically. What does that mean? It means you can't pay for them. It means you can't rely on friends and family. You just don't have enough of them, and they don't mean anything anyway. You have to have real fans. Once you find your fan base, you can sustain and actually have a career, even though it might be small, but you have to find that fan base. It's not always easy, but there's a fan base for every type of music. You just have to find it. And last but not least, Everything starts and ends with the song. You can follow the social media schedule. You can follow any kind of advice in all of these nine principles that I just mentioned. But if you don't have good songs, it doesn't matter. So first and foremost, write good songs, and then you have a chance to use everything else. If you have any questions or comments, you should send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. If you want to learn more about the basics of mixing, sign up for my four-week Music Mixing Primer webinar course. Go to mixingprimer.com to learn more. Also check out my new Hitmakers Club for access to a powerful online group, all of my courses, monthly workshops and Q&A webinars, core basic training, and much, much more. Go to hitmakersclub.com to find out all about it. Now, another thing that happened last week was the fact that Apple released some new hardware. The creative community was beginning to think that Apple was just going to concentrate on iPhones and consumer products and kind of forgot about everybody when it comes to hardware. However, everything that came out looks like it's really usable for a creative pro, for the music pro. So if you look at the new MacBooks, for instance, the MacBook Pros, one of the things that's cool is they have new graphics chips and the new Cabby Lake processors, which means they're now blazingly fast. As compared to what came out last year, the very last generation of MacBook Pros were kind of just window dressing. There wasn't too much different to them. These, however, these new ones, are definitely something that you can use in a pro environment and use it very, very well. About the only thing that... I don't like about these things are the fact that they still have just USB-C and Thunderbolt connectors on them. So you'll still have to use adapters in order to use your FireWire and USB 123 devices. That being said, it's a small price to pay and we're all eventually going to go to Thunderbolt and USB-C anyway. I think what's even more exciting was the new iMacs that came out. And again, these have 
both the new graphics chip and a brand new processor and in the Cabby Lake processors. And what that means is they're a whole lot more powerful. They look a whole lot better. And many music professionals have already gone over to iMacs. I know I've done it myself. I have an iMac here that I run my Pro Tools rig at home, and I've never had a problem. I've never run out of processing steam. I have an, an extra screen on it. Everything works just fine, and it will only work better with the brand new iMacs that came out. Even better, the new iMac Pro, which is kind of expensive if 5K came out, but it does have four Thunderbolt ports, which is something that we can't get enough of. Everybody wants more Thunderbolt connections, but the fact of the matter is they're really expensive to put on, as I understand. However, iMac Pro will have four of them. So that's pretty cool. Look pretty soon for a new Mac Pro desktop to come out too. And Apple swears that it's going back to the way it was where you can actually define exactly what you want and you can upgrade as you need. So we'll see. That'll be pretty cool. My guest today is Pete Dell, who was my guest on episode number 64 a couple of years ago or so. Pete has a new home at Aftermaster in Hollywood, so I thought it would be interesting to hear just what he did in building his new mastering studio. This isn't a new build from the ground up, and it's more similar to what the average engineer will be working with, which is exactly what makes his story so appealing. I spoke with Pete at his studio in the heart of Hollywood, California. Let's start with the history of this studio, of this facility, because it is steeped in history. There's a lot that has gone on here in the past. I don't know the entire backstory of Crossroads of the World, where our studios are located, but I know that it was allegedly envisioned as America's first outdoor mall. Didn't know that. And all these buildings are supposedly representative of a different European country, like no two windows, no two doors are identical. It was built in 1936, and the space that our studios are in, you know, that is my mastering studio and a couple other studios up here on the second floor here, used to be Alfred Hitchcock's production offices. And sort of to commemorate that, we have some great pictures of him with uh, Jimmy Stewart or uh, Sean Connery and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of history. Al Schmidt used to have a record label here back in 79, he told me. It was Pentagram Records. No kidding. I didn't yeah. know that. Some good stuff I... I've never heard of it either, but I went and looked, and there were some great artists, Kenny Rankin, and I don't know, a lot oh. of good stuff. He was only here for a year or two, but I was still swinging for the fences at, uh, well, I won't even try to say how old he is. Yeah, now. yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> but inspirational. And then Graham Nash's studio was here. And the studio, which we just gave you the 50-cent tour on next door, is a separate building, used to be back... 35 years ago, when I first came to town, it was called Rudy Records. And yes, it was Graham Nash and Danny Korchmar, I think, Cooch. Or Cooch was the engineer. He was like driving the bus, I think, at and, that point. And then it was his manager, I think, part of There's it. been a bunch of stuff there. Uh, it was Private Island for a minute. It was, I don't know, there, there's been a number of things since it was Rudy Records, but. Yeah. Uh, um, We've only just really kind of christened it a, a month or two ago, and it's getting some some positive press and positive feedback from the people who've used it thus far. So, knock on something. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll be right. able to we'll be able to keep the keep the doors open and keep the music playing and and all that. It's a nice nice room. Yeah, it is. It and, is. And um, um, a very more, unique SSL with the wings on it. 
Yeah, no and it's a, it's a big G plus, which for those people, I've always been a, a Neve guy. I've probably done like two sessions in my career on an SSL and it was just mixing. I've never recorded on one. I don't personally know all the, you know, the niceties of all the various different models uh, in scoring, which was the, the business I was in until I joined uh, Universal getting into mastering. Uh, the J's and K's are pretty well regarded. Yeah, right, right. Uh, but for like hip hop and uh, for a lot of, you know, the, the E's and the G's, you know, the, the older series have more panache or whatever. Yeah, yeah, right. For them. Right. And for, for music, I think um, they're probably more, they're, well, let's put it this way they're more aggressive, the, the E's and the G's, than the J's and the K's. That much I think I can safely yeah. say. And that's why the J's and the K's for orchestral music were the chosen ones. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, let's go back to Universal for a second, just so people can get a feel for what happens in big corporate music. <laughs> so you were at Universal for Universal Mastering for how many years? Five? Uh, almost 13 years. It's a good long time. Yeah. And then suddenly it was over. They came into my room one day, they meaning, you know, the boss's bosses, and uh, said, Pete, we need to speak to you. Okay. So it means we're going to let you go. Well, what, I got two weeks, four weeks? No, pack your shit and you get, you know, we'll see you in the parking lot in five minutes kind of thing. Wow. But fortunately, I, I said, well, you know, I have some clients, I have attended sessions booked the next couple of weeks. And, you know, some of those people have the power of the pen. You know, they, they can write and they can make you look bad. They can make me look bad. Oh, well, then then I ended up staying another couple, three weeks. You know. <laughs> But well, they were pretty good to me. But the reason, the reason that they closed, uh, well, well, initially they got rid of the the two mastering guys, myself and Eric Leibson, who's now I'm happy to report over at United Recording and doing well over there. Um, they got rid of us two and the two bosses. So they got rid of the, the four oldest, the four highest paid guys. Sure. And then fast forward to almost a year later, they have now shuttered the place. Now Iron Mountain has the whole facility. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, so their Universal got rid of it, and what did they do? We were a union facility, the the mastering studios out here in L.A., and they they reopened the non-union mastering studio in New York. Yeah, of course, that's what they did. Yeah. Well, wasn't this uh, a byproduct of the EMI acquisition as well? Exactly. Yeah, uh, we were the sort of the not the final straw, but the the final decision, I guess of what to do with the, the two, since, like you say, the, since they acquired Capital EMI, and uh, we both had mastering studios. Capital had alone had the iconic recording studios. We didn't have anything like that. Uh, we also had the big money maker at our facility was the production studios, and Capital really didn't have any of that, but the overlap was the mastering. And because they too were union, but a different union, they couldn't mix and match guys. Oh. So the way they finally did it was they got rid of the shops uh, by, you can't get rid of the union, but they could close the whole facility, which is how they, they dealt with it. Oh, uh, I see. Okay. So you ended up over here at Aftermaster, and you built a new room from the ground up, and that's what I want to hear about because... <laughs> well, it isn't exactly that I built it from the ground up, because this sort of the treatment on the walls, at least, was here, because... Shelly used to be in this room, Shelly Akis. Oh, okay, I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, when, I, when I moved in, I mean, they hadn't been using it for an extended time, so I don't know what he exactly was doing in here. 
whether it was mixing or editing or yeah. what have you. I mean, it's really not much bigger than a bedroom. You know, it's not even like, it's not, it's not a third the size of my bedroom at my house. It's not big in mastering studio terms, but, no. but it's big enough. Yeah. And it doesn't feel cramped or crowded at all. So no. uh, you can have clients in here easily. And so I would say need? this is about 15, let's call it a 15 foot square. And let's call the, you know, maybe a nine foot ceiling. It's, it's not very huge. Okay. And what's interesting is you have traps in the corners of the ceiling and on the corners of the walls. So you don't usually see corner ceiling traps. So that's a, an interesting thing, and that's yeah. why the room sounds good. I mean, you walk in, and it just feels right. It feels yeah. good. And I got to say, uh, you know, I was really spoiled at Universal. The room I had over there <laughs> was about 30 by 20 by 15-foot ceilings. Yeah, it was huge. It was huge. And because uh, Delta H Design, our friends uh, Hanson Shu over there at, at, at Delta H, uh, had built the room from the ground up. The, the acoustics were extraordinary. In yeah. fact, it sounded pretty much exactly the same way at the back of the room on the couch as it did uh, at the at the mix position, if you will. Uh, I was 11 feet away from the front wall, so 20 feet behind me sounded the same. The tonal balance was the same. Yeah. Obviously a little louder where I am because I'm up closer to the speakers and everything. Yeah. But uh, as great as that room sounded, when I, when I sit in my so-called sweet spot here, it's unbelievably great. I have different speakers now, too, than I had at Universal. Well, I want to go there, yeah. But but basically, even though the uh, the acoustics of the room uh, were way more neutral, and in fact, that's the, the whole sort of design concept of the zero reflections. That's what uh, the trademark uh, technology that um, Delta H Design does. So that the room isn't participating. It isn't changing the sound that you're hearing as you walk around the room. Uh, here, this is definitely more like a dead room. So you don't get any bounce. You don't get reflections. So it's similar in that regard. But you really have to stay put. <laughs> you have a sweet spot, yeah. 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 Fortunately, I was going to say, though, uh, you don't have hardly ever have attended sessions. So the fact that people aren't having to say, gee, it sounds kind of weird in here sitting over there where you are just now you know, way off to the side or behind me because it's going to get boomier as you get back into the room. Well, okay, you're starting up a new room. How did you go about choosing the gear? Did your philosophy on what you needed or what you wanted change from when you first set up your room at Universal? Well, I sort of wanted the concept of recreating it, you know, getting basically everything I, I needed Everything I had there, I wanted to sort of recreate, and I sort of have. I've got a couple of pieces that I didn't have over there, you know, by design. Like I got a Millennia Equalizer, which I fell in love with the plug-in. And <laughs> wouldn't you know it, there's a feature of the plug-in that I like that the, the hardware one doesn't have, which is MS. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. The plugins have that, but the, the real beast does not. And, you know, I own some of this. And we had to purchase a bunch of it, but some of it was, as you might imagine, going with any company, uh, was a budgetary decision. Uh, I'm actually flabbergasted that I was able to convince my bosses that uh, I should uh, be able to get these new speakers. So you got Lipinski's. Yeah, over at Universal, I had Dyn Audio, 
uh, the big M3s, which are dual 15s and uh, mid-range and a tweeter. Uh, they were a three-way system, uh, which sounded fantastic in that big room, but they were just too big for this room. Um, but in Studio B at, at Universal, uh, Eric Lapson had these Lipinskis, uh, which uh, I had heard some years before, at least just the 707, which is the center box there with the mid-range and these two little six-inch woofers. Um, and I have it with that plus a base module, which has just three more uh, little woofers, so for a total of five woofers. <laughs> and on, on the back of them, they're, they're strapped with their own Class D power amps, which uh. are unbelievably fast and accurate and ridiculous. Uh -huh. That's the secret then. I would have to say it, yeah. 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 Well, uh, Andrew Lipinski is a freak. He's an absolute genius, this guy. I don't know if you know anything about him. I do a little, but he... He, yeah. has, a, he has a record label. It's all classical stuff in Poland. That's where he lives and is from. And nothing is good enough. He designs his own microphones, designs his own mic preamps, his own equalizers, his own amps, his own speakers. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's quite an amazing guy. Um uh, so these speakers, um, Hanson, who we were just referring to with Delta H Design, the acoustics guy, um, has a relationship with Andrew, and he said, look, you got to try these speakers in your new room. And I sort of didn't want to because yeah, I knew I'd fall in love with them, and I thought I'd have a very, <laughs> yeah, right. very uphill battle trying to convince the bosses that they're worth, I think these are like 37000 well, That's with the amps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the amps I had <clears throat> powering my dying audios over at Universal were plenteous. I think they were 25000 just for the amps. Yeah, sure. So you can spend uh, some money. That's a lot of dough, yeah. 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 And in this room, unlike at Universal, um, the system that uh, Eric had, he had the center module and two base extensions and two subs. Yes, I remember, yeah. It was, you know, an $80,000 rig. But that was a vast, I mean, you know, probably the room is five, six times the size of this room, yeah. volume-wise. Yeah. Uh, so I don't need the subs in here. You know, what I've always found with high-end speakers like this is that they don't get loud, they just get bigger, which is what you want. You don't yeah. want it loud. Right. But Well, in mastering, difference. you know, you, you basically put the volume control at 12 o'clock, and if the phone rings, I hit dim, but I never touch the volume control. Yeah. You know, because you need to have... Uh, sort of a consistent reference for what you're doing and you start moving the volume up and down you'll yeah, you lose it lost yeah you don't have a second set of speakers that you you know with. i have these genelec 1030s oh okay on the floor that. and you know i i started using them hardly at all and I, why why do i even have them i don't need them in here yeah you know i used to use them at universal as a more of a, a sibilance check if anything else you know yeah uh because they're, they sounded good. And in fact, going up and down uh, between the Dynaudios and Genelex was very close, very easy to, you know, they made sense to one another. They're kissing cousins in a way. But they did, they sounded so radically different from this yeah. that, it, that it added a confusion factor. And I, I never really found myself reaching for it. So I took them down. So what were some of the challenges that you ran into building a new room? Well, as I was telling you before we started the, the the tape rolling, I'm in a room with a big picture window, I guess you'd have to say. It's probably, you know, four by six kind of window, and it has a partition type of, 
you know, it can open up to the street. And I'm only, you know, 30 yards from Sunset Boulevard here. So you hear the traffic, you hear helicopters, you know, as they're chasing knuckleheads running around Hollywood. Um, you hear conversations down below. But now, I guess of only two weeks ago, we finally put in a second pane of glass. Not only is it great for not hearing those crazy things at the bottom of the fade that you thought, how did I miss that? I yeah. never heard that before. Well, it isn't on the recording. It's it's outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Uh, but also, it has tightened up the low end. It definitely feels more solid in here. Sounds more solid. And, and I haven't had to change the EQ. Well, I don't have EQ on the speakers, even though there is that capability on them. Yeah. I don't need it in here. Is the new glass on the outside or the inside? Inside. It's inside, yeah. yeah. In fact, I'm, you know this place is a uh, is like a you know a Hollywood artifact or whatever the, the you know uh, it's oh historical yeah historical right. building of some kind. Yeah. So I'm sure. In fact, you you may or may not be aware that the neighborhood starting right here on the side street from Las Palmas West for a block or two is going to be some humongous development. You know, with like big hotels and it's going to be like the Grove. I mean, like a big shopping and. I wasn't aware of that, but I'm not surprised. Actually, driving in, I was amazed at all of the buildings that used to be there that are now gone. Well, the one was, remember Artisan Studios? Yeah. Which is now a big hole in the ground. Yeah. And the other was Audio Rents across the street, which, <laughs> again, is another hole in the ground now. Yeah. And, and those places have been there. Well, Artisan turned into a restaurant, what, five or six years ago? Yeah, but nonetheless, fork. the buildings were there ever since I've been here, which is 1980s. <laughs> It's yeah. a long time, but yeah. Hollywood is changing, definitely. Well, it's a, good, it's a good sign that the economy is doing well. They're, they're throwing billions of dollars into Hollywood. Yeah. But unfortunately, they're going to be digging like down several stories to put underground parking in right across the street. That won't be good. I don't know how, how the recording studio here is going to be yeah. functioning with all that digging and hammering and pounding and stuff going on. It won't affect me. Well, you work pretty early anyway, right? Yeah. I'm no longer the on the noon to midnight or four in the morning kind of schedule like a, people who record. I usually, I'm usually here by eight. This week I was here at quarter to six a couple of days. Ouch. Yeah, but it's probably really quiet. Then, Man, it, it, it usually takes me 30 minutes to get to work if I try to be here at eight. Yeah. It takes 11 minutes to drive seven miles if you're trying to get here at six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I understand. Welcome That's, to LA. Definitely. Okay, so... There's a couple of new pieces. There's the Millennia EQ. Right. And what else did you get that's new? Well, this Waves thing, which I used to have the L2. Yeah. Is now the Max BCL. So it has, has you know, an extra bass limiter, you know, enhancer kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's an acquired taste. I'm not sure I would have bought it again, but it's good. This Summit 2 equalizer I didn't have, and I've got that recently, and that's... So I've got, I've got a, a Summit tube equalizer. I have a Millennia uh, equalizer that has tube topology and JFETs. Uh, I have this, you know, probably 45, 50-year-old uh, Sontec equalizer that has big op amps in it. And I have a Neve equalizer. But this topology is probably, it's, the 80, it's from the 88R console. But as that memory serves, that... Equalizer was originally the one that was in the 8108, which was the EQ was the only good thing about that console. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. With the McDonald's matrix and everything yeah. on it. Um, but we had one of those at Capitol Records where I used to work. And the sound of the EQ is good. So I've got four completely different flavors of EQ, which is great. 
Well, how much are you going outside the box? It must be a lot. I don't actually anymore. No? No. I'm, the, the plugins are, are so powerful, and the, the, there's so much flexibility. Um, not only to mention, but if you have, you know, you get something that, gee, I wish I could make, you know, when the chorus happens, it could be more dramatic than in this guy's mix. It just kind of lays there like a dog. You know, you can put a plug in on just the choruses and make them stand up and salute in a way that you'd have to do some crazy edits in order to, if you're using just outboard gear. Yeah, yeah. Right? So it does give you a lot more creative uh, juice, if you will. Yeah. So I like that. Did you have the Manly console before? No, I had uh, Dangerous. I had oh. Dangerous Music Console, uh, right. the, the Master, Dangerous Master and... I forget what the other thing is with the uh, with the inserts, and right now I've got this very bizarre Italian thing is the thing I'm using to get the analog inserts and stuff going, and it's not nearly as robust sounding as the uh, as the dangerous stuff. So I'm I'm gonna very shortly here revert to that. And the the manly console is just for uh, just level. audio monitoring. Yeah, yeah, it has you know switching for what you're listening to, but it has no inserts and whatnot. And is there a Universal Audio? Is that an Apollo I see over there as well? Yep, and that's just that's for one of the computers, but you know I have a couple things in here. But the the main converter is this Prism um, A to D to D A to no D to A to D. So that's a really nice sounding piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They make good stuff. That's for sure. At Universal, I used to have the Meitner, which oh, I geez. liked a lot too. Yeah. But this is. This is a little bit more modern sounding. I like it a lot. So you're very close to your monitors. You're, what, three, four feet away, about four feet away, five, maybe? I mean, no more close. than four feet. Well, I mean, the other thing about it is I'm so close to the wall, the speakers themselves are that, so close Which is close unusual, wall, yeah. Um, that, you know, you really have to be careful about um, low-end buildup when you get close to the wall. Yeah. In fact... Um, as I intimated, we had a really nice relationship with Dyne Audio. Um, at Universal, there were seven studios, and six out of the seven had Dyne Audios in them. And uh, before the AES convention last fall here in Los Angeles, they had contacted me and wanted me to um, take delivery of their new mastering speaker. They made some new $85,000 without amplifiers, ladies and gentlemen. Holy crap. Uh, so they better be good, right? So they sent them over here. They were going to live with me for, you know, three or four days before they were shuttled over to the convention itself. And because I, I needed to have them up near the front of the room and right by the wall, and, almost, you know, there's no place to put them except next to those. So yep. they're even more in a corner. And they have they both had, um, they had two base ports in the back. Oh, that's not going to work. Were, it was, you know, yeah. it was just a boom fest in here. They were just completely, the room was completely unflattering for them. Yeah. And I heard him over at the show. They sounded great. In fact, the, the renowned Bob Katz, who's you know, a tremendous mastering engineer, uh, not only did he get a pair, but he, he gushed on Facebook for a couple of months <laughs> every day about those darn things. Yeah, he's but a they gusher. were very impressive. Yeah. yeah but yeah. they sounded, they were just so wrong in here. So I mean that's that's the one thing that you that I really struggled with. I mean, because um, I didn't want to turn on the EQ, so 
moving these speakers just a couple degrees this way, a quarter of an inch off away from the wall, or you know, doing all that to get the tonal balance and the image just so without having to resort to EQ. I mean, th those things are heavy, and <laughs> they're on stands and it's on a rug. You can't just like slide them around like oh, as if, yeah, yeah, if yeah, you right. were on a wood floor, like like I am, my chair is here. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so it was a bit tricky to get to get them to be situated and have them sound great, but man, they sound great. You got a TC six thousand, right? Yeah, six thousand. So what do you use that for? Multiband compression. Mm -hmm. I mean, every once in a great, great while, you'll need some reverb on something. Um, sometimes you get a mix that just sounds odd. You know, just doesn't have any uh, sense of place. You know, just like stuff that doesn't sound kind of connected. And even though, uh, you know, sometimes people look for compression to be the glue you know, so that you can sort of tidy everything up. But sometimes putting a little space around stuff, and I don't mean really reverb, but something really short. And if you can do it, um, I learned this. <laughs> I've only watched a couple episodes of Pensado's Place, but I learned something on each time I watched yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And this one, uh, Dave was talking about how you can you molt ascend to two different reverbs and just use one side of one and on one the other, side yeah yeah right, right? and and del and change the, the characteristics of them ever so slightly like the pre-delay or the early reflections so uh, uh so what your ear hears is just really out in the side so it doesn't muddy the center image you're not hearing all this like you know verb on a bass drum or a bass guitar or something yeah. you know it doesn't yeah. sound odd but it does add a little space and all of a sudden sometimes just that alone will make wow now suddenly everything makes sense. You can listen to it. You know, this sounds odd. You make it sound much more musical, I guess. That's a good trick. Yeah, it is. But obviously that's something that people uh, who are mixing would be much more likely to actually use than, sure. than in mastering. But every once in a, you know, what, once, twice a year, <laughs> you pull that out of your toolbox. But, but it's good. Didn't I see something you were doing? Uh, is it American Idol or? No, I'm doing uh, Empire. Empire. Okay. So, what's it like mastering for a television show? Is well, does it require a different approach? Well, I, I, the stuff I'm doing isn't part of the broadcast. In other words, it's a dramatic show. Yeah. Unlike American Idol or The Voice, we did The Voice for twelve years over at Universal, and I worked on the very first season of American Idol, which was let's not even get in, go let's not even <laughs> go there. Uh, but but this show is a dramatic show, and I'm going to guess that they probably. Do, you know, like 60, 90 seconds of a song on the show, you know, as part of the story. Uh, and then I get the full three, four minute version of the song and master it and it goes up in iTunes. Oh, I see. It's not for the broadcast. So you just master it as you would? Just another. Well, okay. Date. But let's go back again. You said you did The Voice for a long time and American Idol. Would your approach be different? No, because it was the same way there. Oh, okay. So it wasn't for broadcast. Correct. In fact, well, the the thing with American Idol, the first year, they were using pre-records. So we would record all the music and mix all the music, you know, basically karaoke time. Yeah. Uh, and that would be what was used on the air. Uh, and I don't know if they ever did iTunes that first year. Because after the first year, they saw how wacky it was. So... What they did was, it's they rehearse with a band during the couple of days before the broadcast with the singers, so they everybody learns everything, and then that same band records the track with the vocalist 
and they get the vocals get tuned and everything, and you know get all the yeah. all the niceties done, and then they they mix all those things, and then I master them, and they're up in iTunes the moment the show airs, so you can. If you buy the guy's track on iTunes, that goes that factors into the voting. Oh, I because didn't you know gotta that. Admit, some of these people have a shelf life of a week or two. Yeah, right. You, know, right. you better get the money now while you can. Yeah. Um, so that's I don't like I don't think they thought about it at, in the first year of uh, that was two thousand two for uh, American. Well, Island. iTunes wasn't until two thousand three. So there you there go. There you go. Is that true? Yeah, I didn't realize that. Wow. Yeah. Well, that would be why there weren't no iTunes then. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Okay, what kind of advice would you have for someone that's in a similar position as you, where they're coming into a room sort of like this and, and that it's on the small side, where there are limitations to what they could do? I mean, let's assume that there isn't like the obvious thing, like there's a, a giant, you know, 10-foot mirror on the back wall behind you, something super reflective back there. you got to tone down the reflections in the room. But assuming that you don't have like some massively crazed acoustic thing facing you, you know, like like I was saying, the most important thing is that you you know what your speakers are telling you. Um, so I spent the first bunch of days um, after I decided on what speakers I'm going to use because you know I auditioned a number of different types of uh, speakers in here. Um, you know, Adams and Genelec, and uh, I almost went with uh, Alan Sides. Uh, got those Oceanway SR things. They sounded very impressive. Uh, when I heard him, where I heard him, but they didn't quite sound as good in here. Yeah, I couldn't see how they would, they would translate in no, there somehow. They were they were kind of recessed in the middle. Yeah, you know, but but they were really impressive sounding where I, where I heard them, and you know, bang for the buck, I, man, awesome. But anyway, so have music that you really know what the hell it sounds like, and then play them over the speakers, and if it uh, doesn't sound right, you better start moving those speakers. You know, like again, you know. A little further out from the wall, a little closer to the wall, a little uh, closer to the corner, a little further away from the corner, uh, until you get an image and, and, a, and a tonal balance that sounds like what you know the record really sounds like. Right? Uh, sometimes you may have to move the desk around too. Yeah, I think that's something that people overlook in general, where they think, okay, this is the place. Put it here. It's done. Oh my God! It doesn't sound right. Yeah, and then then they resort to EQ and all sorts of crazy stuff yeah. rather than just doing the obvious. Yes, yeah, so you better. It's best to start without putting the the EQ on it because that's kind of a band aid. Yeah, I mean the obvious thing here was uh, this room, as I say, is is not very big, uh, so I needed to sit at one end of the room rather. I mean, like it would be nicer, I thought to. You know, to be sitting back here away, but the yeah. So the you're further, midway in the room now. Yeah, you're sitting midway in the, the room. The further you get into the room, the boomier it gets. So you need to. But but keep, that's because of the monitors of of what monitors that you chose. Very possibly. Yeah. But I mean, it was, it was sort of true with every set of speakers. Was it? Yeah, in here. Uh, like if you get up and go to the back, you hear like a whole other. <laughs> this incredible depth. I mean, incredible low end buildup. As you walk towards the door. Yeah, yeah. That you don't, it sounds just fine up here. Here's a question for you. So how long did it take you to where you felt really comfortable about what you're doing in here? I'd probably say about a month. Mm -hmm. And what I must say, though, is that uh, the number of home runs where I got something that, you know, you give it to the client and there's no revisions. 
Yeah, that's a home run for sure. Yeah. I mean, and I, I actually have had more of that than I did at Universal, I would oh. say. I, I attribute that to the quality of the speakers. Uh, I mean, seriously, a, a, a tenth of a dB at this frequency versus that, it's like, it's not even not even subtle. It's like, it's that one. You're hearing a tenth of a dB. Oh, hell yeah. And I'm an old coot, and you can really hear it. Yeah. No, it's 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 a good thing. That's pretty impressive, considering that on most systems you're lucky if you can hear a half dB, and usually it's one dB. Yeah, you know. So yeah. if if you can go down to a resolution of a tenth, that's pretty amazing. Well, yeah. in no. in any kind of room, doesn't matter. Oh yeah, I mean I'm I'm I may be um, hyperbolic a, a hair there with a tenth of a dB. Yeah, but, but even I mean, so, but it, I mean seriously, you just breathe on the knob and then try a couple of different frequencies. You go. That's the one that actually makes makes you stand up and salute. As a result, do you find yourself EQing less? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Now that being said, so you're finding you're EQing less and it's translating better. Right. There's a uh, lesson that somewhere, isn't there? And when you're EQing, how much of that is boosting rather than cutting, or vice versa? I think uh, almost always a uh, subtractive EQ is uh, going to get you into less trouble. Yeah. But, you know, like if, if what some, all something needs is air, you know, some supersonic kind of stuff, well, then you have to add it. And how often does that happen? I'm just curious because I think that's one spot that a lot of mixers really do miss where the whole air thing, their ears, perhaps they can't hear it. They don't understand how to, to add it. So how often do you have to do that? Well, I mean, it kind of depends on the music. I mean, like yeah. um, some music... You really don't want to add a lot of top to, like, let's say, hip-hop. Yeah, sure. Uh, because people listen so bloody loud. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, like, I do a fair amount of jazz, and sometimes that's really all it, it wants or needs, you know, is the, the, the super ultra top to make it open up, and you can, posit, you can hear stuff in the stereo um, soundscape better mm-hmm. with just a little ultra top, I would call it, you know. Um, there's some great stuff. I mean, the the 25K here in the Sontech, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, my, my favorite plug-in for, for Air is the Air EQ, and that's um, Fabrice Gabriel's company, Iosis. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you used the MOG, M-A-A-G? No. Very interesting because they have an Air Band that mm-hmm. goes out 30k or 50k i don't remember what it was and i had him on the podcast he said okay wait a second nobody can hear out that far he says yeah but wait a second it really doesn't affect that because of the way the filter is you figure that it's half that half whatever it says or less and he has the same thing there's a sub channel on it which is like 30 and it's much the the same thing it's just a wonderful eq you know, not for everybody. Again, you kind of have to know what you're looking for there. Or else and you, you better be able to hear it. And yeah. you start adding, you know, a pound and a half at 30 hertz. Okay, so the new room, the new speakers have made a big difference in how you're, you're EQing everything or not EQing. How about compression? Do you find your approach to compression different? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've always been, you know, depending again on the kind of music, whether you really need to you know, factor that in a, a lot or not. You know, some some music really, like jazz, um, wants to be open. It doesn't really want to be kind of, you know, contained. Yeah. Um, I'm doing, I have a new client who I'm doing a bunch of movie trailers for. 
and you can't believe how loud they want that that stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but you know, it's it's all orchestral and it's super dynamic. So you know, like if, if the first minute or so was quiet, and then the last half minute is like to the moon. Um, you usually start by boosting the beginning, like four or five dB, and having a a minute and a half decrescendo, so that you know. <laughs> so when it gets to the loud bit, it still has room to go loud. Yeah, yeah. Are you being asked to do separate masters for Spotify or Apple Music? Uh, the only one, uh, MFIT, you know, the master for MFIT, iTunes, yeah. that's a separate pass. Yeah. But other than that, no. And the reason why I ask is because now the target luffs level is so different because now Spotify just changed. They went from minus 12 luffs to minus 14 and Apple is minus 16. But really, they do the processing anyway. So as a result, do your clients understand what's happening when it goes to Spotify and the volume gets normalized or Apple Music? Do they understand that if they're more dynamic, it's actually better than if they crush it and it's going to sound well, the same level? you know, try to tell them. <laughs> try to tell them. Yeah. But I don't have that many people jumping up and down and saying, you know, it sounds great, Pete, but I need a 3 dB louder. Yeah, don't have that as much anymore. Yeah, uh, I I do the mastering for this company in Brooklyn called TuneCore, and you know those people can be anywhere all over the world. Uh, you know. And in some places, uh, I think I have to say it more often than not, the people who are still hung up on volume level of the masters is uh, is in Europe. No kidding, I wouldn't have thought. Uh-huh. Any particular genre? Um, dance music. Yeah, okay. You know? That makes sense. So they still got amyl nitrate on their hanky, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, with that, Pete, thanks very much. <laughs> My this pleasure. very cool. Good luck with your, your new room. Well, thank you for coming and uh, witnessing the spectacle that is Aftermaster. For more about Pete and his new Studio E, go to aftermaster.com, aftermaster, all one word, dot com, and click on the Studios tab. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.